and we're beginning in verse 16. It's about the crucifixion. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Well, let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, thanks for the opportunity we've got now to uh, hear you speak to us. We pray that you'd help us to concentrate. Uh, we ask that your spirit would work in us so that we wouldn't just be listening to these words, but they would bring about the change in us that you desire. Uh, give us great confidence in you because of what you've done on our behalf. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Law and Order SVU is a very popular TV show. Still going strong in its 21st year, it is currently ranked third in terms of sheer number of episodes, behind only Lassie in second place and a show called Gunsmoke in first. I've never even seen Gunsmoke, but I admit that I am old enough to have watched a few episodes of Lassie. Law and Order is much more to my liking. It seems that there's something universally enticing about baddies being sent off to jail, of the unrelenting struggle to establish justice. Law and Order is just one in an incredibly long list of legal-themed entertainment over the years. Think Perry Mason, The Firm, Erin Brockovich, Judge Judy or Superman, just to name a few. But centuries before the fight for justice was turned into movies, cartoons and TV shows, the Bible already included the drama of legal dilemmas. Joseph unfairly imprisoned in Egypt. Uh, King Solomon and the two prostitutes who appeared before him asking for justice. Ruth and the legal issues surrounding her mother-in-law. It's human nature to be drawn in by stories of justice. But Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17, 
insightfully says that in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. This verse puts its finger nicely on the tension which makes the fight for justice so popular. Facts are not neutral. The same clues can be seen from different perspectives, interpreted in different ways. When Azaria Chamberlain's cardigan was found at Uluru, the dingo went from weak excuse to prime suspect. This is why we love crime fighters who clear away the confusion, who have the ability to see through the uncertainty and establish the facts. We long for something or someone to give us our bearings, who can give the interpretation or extra piece of information that will sort out the varying accounts of an event, taking them out of the realm of personal opinion and turning them into an undisputable fact. And so today on Good Friday, when many are feeling even more uncertain than normal, we're going to go back over very familiar ground, re-examining well-known information. We've just heard part of the famous story read for us. But rather than looking again at all the details, I want us to consider just one justice-themed question. Who is Jesus, criminal or king? As we read John chapter 19, these are more than just the chronological account of events. John has put them together in the way that he has because he wants to convince us about the identity of Jesus. To, to answer this question, who is Jesus, a criminal or the king? Now, as is the procedure even today, the prosecution goes first and insists that Jesus is a criminal. I think that if we were watching these events with no one giving us commentary, the sheer volume of the evidence would be almost overwhelming. Soldiers take charge of Jesus, verse 16, clearly implying that he is a dangerous criminal. As a result of his guilty sentence, verse 17, he is forced to carry his own cross. And then in verse 18, he's crucified. Substitute a hangman's noose or an electric chair for a cross and we're more likely to receive the message that crucifixion by its very nature screamed. Jesus is not just a criminal. He's the worst kind of criminal. This is the kind of man that can't be simply allowed to rot in a jail. The crime which has led to such a gruesome execution is written on a notice fastened to the top of the cross penned in three languages to ensure that it communicates to the widest possible audience. Its appearance causes the debate we've already identified. Who is Jesus, criminal or king? Pilate's response indicates that he's not convinced that either answer is correct. Mocking Jesus as the king, Pilate crowns him with a crown of thorns. But his mocking of Jesus quickly turns to fear as he realises, verse 8, that he is way out of his depth with this prisoner before him who responds like no one else he has ever met. Manipulating the situation, the Jewish leaders demand the crucifixion of one who would dare to rebel against Caesar, verse 12. But clearly this is merely an excuse. Earlier in verse 7, the Jewish leaders had insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, 
he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. To Jewish ears, the use of this title, son of God, was a claim to be the king of Israel. Think Psalm 2. To Roman ears, like Pilate's, he's almost certainly heard it as a political claim. Was this prisoner really claiming to be a divine rival to the emperor? This bound, powerless, weak figure before him, an alternative to Caesar? Though unconvinced of either his guilt or his glory, he hands Jesus over for crucifixion. The Jewish leaders, in contrast with Pilate, are very certain. They had long ago rejected Jesus as a mere pretender of fraud. But Jesus' royal claims were not the delusions of someone mentally unhitched. Jesus' persistent claims were far worse than that. He was a blasphemer. His claim to speak on God's behalf, to have the authority to forgive sin, to ridicule their carefully constructed way of living, infuriated them. But even worse than that, they believed that it broke the law, that it broke Torah, the instructions that God had given to his people for knowing how to live. Jesus was a criminal, someone breaking God's law in a way that they believed deserved death. And having secured Jesus' certain death, the chief priests then dispute the charge of which he is guilty. Verse 21, their demand of Pilate is, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And yet Pilate dismisses the Jewish leader's request. What I have written, I have written. The case has been made. The verdict handed down. The punishment carried out. And finally, in verse 28, a thirsty Jesus weakly calls out for a drink and then dies. Was he just a political pawn? A troublemaker who's been silenced? Criminal, criminal may be too strong a term, but the suggestion that he was a king is laughable. The prosecution rests its case. But now the defence steps forward. No dispute is made about what has taken place. The issue for the defence is not what, but why. And so some further details must be noted, which shed new light on the why. As he is dying, verse 26, Jesus looks after his mother. Why? Now that could just be the desperation of a dying man, or it could be a hint that Jesus knew all along that he was going to be in this very place, this very situation. Verse 28 pushes it further. John writes that it's because Jesus knows that everything had now been finished, that he says he is thirsty. This is not the act of a passive victim. This is someone preparing to make a declaration, which he does in verse 30. It is finished. Even his death is not as passive as it may have first appeared. Jesus actively bows his head and gives up his spirit. Now, some will think this is grasping at straws, looking for a silver lining to the cloud. Surely this is just putting spin on a terrible situation. But if we look at verse 24, verse 28, and verse 36, we see an important chorus repeated. Verse 24, this happened, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 28, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that, Scripture would be fulfilled. 
Verse 36, these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus' death takes place to fulfill a plan. In the chaos and craziness of that first Good Friday, there was far more going on than political power plays. The outcome was not the result of weak personalities or mighty manipulators. It was certainly not because the strong triumphed over the weak Jesus. This was God's intended way. This was not plan B because humanity had messed up plan A. This was not the desperate reaction of a God scrambling to get things back on course. No, the king was dying for his subjects as it had been planned from before creation. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, For he chose us in him, that is in Jesus, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. As written in the scripture, this is what must happen to open the way back to God. Pilate unwittingly copied God's declaration, what I have written, I have written. And therefore, in God's case, it will come to pass. And so in the seeming chaos of that first Good Friday, we see a God that is in control, moving all things towards his predetermined end. Sure, the means are unlike anyone expected. From the outside, it does appear that chaos and disappointment reigns. And yet it's revealed to us that this is the fulfillment of what God had written. And so the implication is that we too can take courage that he's still in control, still moving everything towards that same end. That though much around us is chaos and disappointment, fear and uncertainty, God remains on his throne. And so we're encouraged to turn again to what he has written, to align ourselves with what he has written, to put our hope in what he has written. Don't let uncertainty allow you to take your eyes from what God is doing. It is written, Jesus is the king who dies according to plan.